Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome, everybody, to another sure-to-be thrilling and fascinating episode of the Into the Impossible podcast, because it features my friend, my uh, inspiration and muse in some of my writing, and that's uh, Paul Halpern, who's a professor at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, the author of many, many books, the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a fellow of the American Physical Society. He lives near the cradle of our democracy in Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, Paul, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me back on your show, Brian. This book is so uh, so fascinating. I thought I knew most of the stories in it. I thought I understood the stakes, which could not be bigger. It's really the creation of all that is, the matter yeah, that matters. That. <laughs> yeah. The matter that matters, the protons, the neutrons, the croutons uh, that are so important <laughs> to me. And uh, a lot of it takes place here in La Jolla in San Diego, where UCSD is located. So it's delightful. And thank you so much for giving me an acknowledgement in the book. I don't deserve it, but uh, I will take anything I can get from you because you are one of my inspirations when I write, Paul. Thank you so nice. much for coming on. This book, well, <clears throat> we'll definitely get into all the details of it, although I never like to give it away. It's out today when this video comes out. It's sure to be a bestseller. And uh, for for all the right reasons, this book characterizes the struggle to understand the universe uh, in its first and earliest moments and to understand the contradistinction between an eternal universe or a steadily evolving universe in a static, steady state, perhaps, from all eternity till now. Uh, and really, it humanizes the characters that made this so uh, so important. So the first thing I, I always love to ask, Paul, as you know from being on the show before, is the title and the cover. We call this judging books by their covers. You're never supposed to do it. Um, I know now I have a prior for you because of all your great books, but uh, for my audience, why is this book have the title that it does and the subtitle and the cover design? Well, it's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm especially proud of the title of this one. I came up with that and flashes of creation has a double <laughs> meaning. So one meaning is the idea of how was the universe created and how did the matter come about in the universe? How were the chemical elements created? And the two people I talk about in the book, George Gamow and Fred Hoyle, had different ideas for how the chemical elements were created. And surprisingly, it was a combination of both of their ideas that turns out to be the real story. George Gamow brilliantly uh, discovered how the hydrogen and helium in the universe was created, particularly how the helium was built up during the Big Bang. And Fred Hoyle looked at the higher elements beyond that, and discovered how all of the other elements were created in the cores of dying stars and released during supernova explosions, which is remarkable. And these were insights by these two men. They were mavericks. They were people who went by their gut feelings. And that's the other meaning of the title, Flashes of Creation. They would get a flash of an idea and go with it. And Gamov got so many ideas when he was at George Washington University, he would call Edward Teller, his colleague, every single day in the morning and come up with another crazy idea. And Teller would often dismiss the ideas. But every once in a while, he stumbled upon something. He went with it. And then within a day or two, he'd come up with some new theory. Uh, for example, his model of alpha decay, he developed overnight. And it's still used today. Uh, which also can be used uh, 
in the reverse manner to see how uh, protons and alpha particles and, and other particles can be used in colliders uh, to be aimed at targets. And he developed those calculations like very, very quickly. So these flashes of creation of mo- both figures in the book were very, very important and drove them toward uh, amazing creativity. But as I show in the book, sometimes they'd be way off. And Hoyle was especially very stubborn with his ideas and kept going with them, even beyond when they were feasible at all, like beyond when the cosmic microwave background was discovered. He kept coming up with new ideas for why it wasn't the Big Bang. It was something else which uh, alienated him from people. The cover was designed by the wonderful people at Basic Books Hachette. And that is kind of a rendition, an artist rendition of the Big Bang, hmm. which nobody can really imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that uh, as I've been focusing on <clears throat> some solo episodes lately on competitive models that still exist to the singular Big Bang, the, the uh, origin story that Gamov really supported and and uh, really doesn't get the, the attention that I think he deserves, uh, although he was extremely uh, well-known, at least by scientist standards, for his popularization. Mr. Tompkins series, One, Two, Three, Infinity. These are wonderful books that really set the stage for people like you and me to write popular science books and accounts and so forth, although he's such a, he's such a master of it. Um, you mentioned already the CMB. I was um, not planning to go there, but I do uh, so soon. Of course, I'm going to go there. It's my <laughs> it pays the bills around here. <clears throat> but um, I didn't know this that in uh, that La Jolla might be the origin place for where the CMB took uh, first first pr- was predicted. Perhaps so. You say uh, you say the most notable face to face encounter between Gamov and Hoyle took place in the summer of 1956 when Gamov was working as a consultant for the defense company General Dynamics here in La Jolla, California. He invited Hoyle for a visit. While driving along the seaside enclave's sunny streets in Gamov's Cadillac, which is kind of funny, (laughs) uh, they had an animated discussion about the temperature of space. Their discourse anticipated, in some ways, Penzias and Wilson's discovery of the CMB radiation. Uh, and I, I just thought that was so delightful that we have this connection here in my my, my adopted hometown of uh, La Jolla, California, to this amazing you know prediction. But um, I guess before uh, we get into the, the nuts and bolts of that prediction, set the stage for these two men. Uh, they were similar and they were very different. They were um, family men, but they were also subject to their own biases that eventually had not catastrophic, but but negative implications on their children that they loved and in some cases, in both cases, collaborated with, right? I mean, both men collaborated with their own uh, children. I think it's wonderful. But they also had, uh, you know, as they say, great men, great women have, can have great flaws too. Talk about them as human beings. Well, they both uh, were interested in conveying science to the general public. They grew up with a great love of science, a great love of nature, a love for astronomy. They both looked up at the skies. Gamov looked up at the skies over Odessa and observed Halley's Comet when he was a child. And Hoyle went out into the countryside and had this moment of epiphany when he looked up at the stars and decided he wanted to be an astronomer, although that took took many twists and turns. Uh, He originally was going to pursue chemistry and went to physics. And then finally, uh, discovered that he was interested in supernovas, 
when he met up with Walter Bade and uh, was interested in that story and turned to astrophysics. Uh, both of them actually turned to astrophysics relatively late in life, career-wise, because they were both more interested in, in nuclear physics and other fields in the beginning, but then found that astrophysics and cosmology were great areas of application for those fields. But in terms of their children, I had the privilege of interviewing all three of their children, which was very exciting. Uh, unfortunately, Igor Gamov passed away recently, a couple mm -hmm. of months ago. Mm -hmm. But he was an incredible person and very, very animated. And he was very proud of talking about his dad. And so were uh, Liz Butler, who was Hoyle's uh, daughter, and uh, Jeff Hoyle. Jeff Hoyle collaborated with his father on science fiction novels. Igor Gamov continued the Mr. Tompkins series almost until his final year um, <laughs> through comic books. So they were very proud of continuing their, their parents' legacy. And uh, another interesting thing about their children is that e both Igor and Liz Butler were rebels. They uh, turned away from science for a while, and then they went back to science. And that shows the power of their father's influence. Uh, so in terms of their personalities, both of them were very self-driven. They both had a love of Hollywood, I discovered. They liked different kinds of movies. Hoyle loved mystery movies. And as I show in my book, um, there was a mystery movie, a horror movie, The Dead of Night, that inspired, helped inspire the steady state theory. Gamov, on the other hand, surprisingly loved cowboy movies. And his nickname was Joe, Cowboy Joe, spelled G-E-O. So if you hear someone talking about Gamov, who know, knew Gamov, they talk about Joe and say, wait a minute, Joe, G-O-E? No, G-E-O, which yeah. was short for the Russian for George Gamow. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and he adopted that nickname when he was working with Niels Bohr in Copenhagen. And there's a funny story about that because he and uh, Bohr challenged each other to a duel because they had an argument over why uh, heroes win battles in, in cowboy movies when the villain has the advantage because the villain is evil. The villain uh, comes up and will do a sneak attack. But they demonstrated this using uh, toy pistols. And it turned out that Boar, who argued uh, for the hero, uh, ended up being first. Mm. And uh, <laughs> But anyway, uh, uh, Gamov continued to love cowboy movies and that's when he adopted the name Joe. And <laughs> son uh, became kind of a cowboy, had, had a ranch uh, out in uh, near Boulder, Boulder, Colorado. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, where, they re, where he relocated after uh, many years at uh, George Washington. And um, I think, you know, when I read the book, by the way, you're 
uh, equal in your storytelling ability equals only your research ability. This book is so thoroughly researched. And again, I'm sitting in the office, not this moment, but my office, as I told you before in our last interview, is Jeffrey Burbage's old office. So I, I'm privy to all of his uh, old notes. And, and so, I mean, his, his daughter, Sarah, as you know, and you quote in the book, um, they took his notes and the library here has Margaret's notes. But every now and then I'll find, you know, a scrap of paper with, uh, with his handwriting on it or, or a photographic plate of a quasar that Margaret took, you know, before uh, you or I were, were probably even born. And uh, you just dig into the history so thoroughly with a historian's, you know, ability uh, scholars insights, but also as, you know, telling this story as a storyteller in a way that physicists like me can really appreciate and learn something. So I don't want you to respond to that, but I, I just want to be, uh, equally or, 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 or appropriately effusive because it's so much fun. I don't have that much time to read books about stuff I already know. Right. I read this book. I learn so much and, <laughs> and it's just such, such a treat. I want to go through one, one theme that stuck out to me and maybe it wasn't intentional, but the um, the interplay with Bob Dickey at uh, at Princeton, uh, my late great grand advisor um, uh, David Wilkinson at Princeton, and and other characters, and kind of the twin uh, aspects of the 20th century in which these two the milieu in which they were operating, and it was kind of after World War II, and at both the kind of nuclear and the atomic age shines through in their work, obviously in the uh, fusion processes that take place in both Hoyle's and in, uh, and in Gamov's work, but also uh, the influence of radar and radio astronomy and telecommunications and communications in general. That was always known to me. And David Kaiser, our mutual friend at MIT, has, has pointed this out, um, along with uh, their mutual fascination in the origin of life. In, in other words, in how life could have come about. And that was sort of related to you know, Roswell and all the stuff that would go on in the 40s and 50s. And that was another aspect of the atomic age, the post-World War II milieu in which they grew up. So were these men, you know, uh, except for their scientific claims, were they ideological brothers in arms? I mean, would they have in another world, in another universe in the multiverse, <laughs> would they have basically been, you know, two sides of the same coin? Well, um, I'm not, not Doug Adams, but I tried to delve into my book about life, the universe, and everything. Yeah. <laughs> I, love that, I love that expression. And interestingly, both Gamov and Hoyle were fascinated by those topics. They wanted to unravel not just the origin of everything, not just the origin of all matter, but also the origin of life. And uh, Gamov was more successful than Hoyle because Gamov contacted experts. He contacted James Watson and, uh, and, and spoke with him about you know, the genetic code and came up with this idea of using combinatorics to understand how amino acids are created from genetic material, which was a brilliant idea and was incorporated by the geneticists. So they still give a tribute to Gamma for that. And Hoyle um, was um, somebody who turned to, uh, turned to the idea of life later on, but it wasn't so successful because he was um, not so much relying on experts. And uh, he came up with a little bit of a strange theory uh, that all diseases came from space or come from space, which um, people, some people were offended by that and put off by that, understandably, when he talked about, you know, for example, 
uh, AIDS coming from space and Legionnaire's disease coming from space. People were like, what's going on here? He seems, you know, way off. Uh, something's wrong. And that was his in his later years. Right. So uh, he did enough brilliant stuff in his earlier years that we can, um, you know, dismiss his later <laughs> years. Yeah, he was, seemed to be always guided by his intuition, whereas, you know, you seem to portray Gamov as much more methodical in a way, although he seems more mercurial, more mischievous, uh, et cetera, famously adding people to uh, to 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 papers to, to as to make a pun. I mean, you can't even imagine such things happening today. Uh, Beta is not a bad co-author to add if you have to add somebody. But the thing about Hoyle, I, I felt like the more he got uh, entrenched in in his beliefs, the more he became a scientific community outsider, and that maybe made him kind of suffer from maybe confirmation bias or some form of paranoia that. Everything's out to, you know, kind of oppose him. And even I talked to Giant Narlikar earlier this year, who you point out is a, is a titanic figure still to this day in India. And his wife, Mangala, is is just e- equal in, uh, in every way to him. And I just had such a delightful time talking to them. I miss when they would visit here. I hope they will again. But Giant still maintains the steady state, quasi steady state is is viable. The Big Bang has serious problems. And I wanted to point out, and you mentioned this in the book, the classic story is that the CMB killed the steady state. But you point out in the book, in 1972, Weinberg's you know, Gravitation and Cosmology, he basically talks about the steady state as having all these virtues uh, because it's falsifiable. It's not like Genesis 1-1. Uh, all the reasons that Hoyle didn't like the Big Bang or additional reasons that Hoyle didn't like the Big Bang. Hoyle certainly wasn't malevolent, but uh, but I don't believe that that the general you know community of cosmologists is correct in assuming the CMB killed the the steady state. In fact, as you no- noted, and I, I note in my book, the Dickey people's roles in Wilkinson paper never mentions the Big Bang, not at all. It only mentions the collapse of a previous cycle. And yeah. uh, and of course, who is more knowledgeable about this than Peebles and, and Dickey, obviously. So anyway, uh, what do you make of this notion in the popular culture? Is it just a shortcut? Is it a crutch that we use to just have a nice just-so story, as Rudyard Kipling called it, that the CMB killed the steady state? Yeah, it's it's very simplistic to say, you know, Big Bang won, Fred Hoyle lost, end of story. Uh, because he pointed out correctly that there were um, some conceptual problems with the Big Bang, uh, especially uh, the, the Big Bang theory as known in the 1960s. Uh, they had to resolve the issue of the Hubble constant, pin, pin, pin that down, uh, pin down a number of the cosmological parameters. Uh, originally, when in, the, in 1948, when um, Gamma was advocating the Big Bang Theory along with uh, Alfred and Herman, uh, the age of the universe was estimated to be a couple of billion years old, which is much younger than than the stars. So that yeah. was a big problem. I would say that's like finding out your, your father is younger than you. It's, it's a little disconcerting. <laughs> so until that, that problem was fixed, um, steady state seemed much more viable. And then there were all these problems with the, the flatness problem, isotropy problem, and so forth that were resolved, as, as most uh, cosmologists think, by inflation, of, of course, there's alternative ideas, cyclic cosmologies and so forth. Yeah, we'll get but to that. When, when inflation came about, as I show in my book, Hoyle sort of claimed a triumph. He said, look, the inflation people are talking about this exponential expansion phase. Well, that's what I was talking about. 
instead of talking about an inflaton field, some field driving inflation just for a fraction of a second, why not just have a creation field, which was Hoyle's idea, slowly creating matter over the eons continuously, then you don't have what's called an inflation, the graceful exit problem. Why did inflation stop? Hoyle was saying, well, inflation didn't stop. It was really steady state or quasi steady state that new matter and energy is very, very slowly being uh, introduced into the universe and the universe is expanding and it existed forever. So um, some people think Hoyle should have adopted some form of the inflationary universe and, and said, you know, okay, inflationary universe is similar enough to steady state. You know, I'll just go with an eternal inflation. But uh, Hoyle d- still didn't like the idea that even, even the idea that the observable universe has a beginning because he thought that that was not testable. So he w- wasn't willing to say, okay, maybe the observable universe has a beginning as a bubble in some kind of greater universe, which would have been a logical leap for him, but he wasn't willing to take that leap. Um, yeah, so- and it was it was it was maybe because it was so antithetical. Although I, I, as you point out in the book, and and many of the listeners already know, you know, Hoyle had uh, come up with the idea that, in some sense provided at least one of the nails in the coffin of the quasi-steady state theory, which is that helium production in stars was insufficient to generate the observed 24.5% helium abundance in our universe. And he knew that, and he wrote you know, this wonderful paper with Taylor that you, that you uh, call out. Uh, and so he wasn't afraid of torpedoing his own ideas, uh, and he wasn't afraid to go out on a limb, as you point out in the famous Hoyle miracle, the resonant uh, 13 MeV resonance of, of carbon, of beryllium that allows for us to exist. I mean, that was as his daughter, as you got her, her quote, you know, he, she basically like he, he predicted it on the basis of his own existence. So it's kind of like an update to, you know, cogito ergo sum, I'm carbon, therefore I exist. Uh, talk about how a great, you know, intellect like him was so scientifically in, uh, had such scientific integrity that he could dismiss an idea or he could promulgate another idea which could be fatal to a previous idea and yet be so stubborn, so resolute that they would continue to put out books and books and papers and so forth about an idea which by the, I would say by the, you know, FIRAS experiment and by WMAP, it had become impossible to believe in the whisker theory of thermalization of starlight. So what did you take away from him? I mean, is he just so complicated that, you know, be bound to have some nutty kind of ideas or to hold on to ideas far too long or suffer from confirmation bias? Or do you think there's a grain of truth like you were just hinting at? I mean, there are uh, kind of, I wouldn't say, you know, real uh, uh, DNA, maybe there's some RNA uh, of inflation and even dark energy, right? Let's be honest. I mean, that's just like some kind of, you know, creation field of energy, right? Uh, So there are some elements of that in there, but Still, he wouldn't fully adopt them. What do you make of that with Hoyle? He's very different than Gamow, I would say. Well, well very interesting. Hoyle's last paper, uh, I think, published in, uh, right before he died, two thousand one, was was actually uh, a joint paper, but uh, tried to explain dark energy. <laughs> so he he kept up with stuff, although by that time he was impaired. Uh, sadly, in his final years, he had a a tragic tragic accident where he was hiking uh, near his, the house where he grew up in and uh, somehow slipped down a ravine 
and uh, hurt, injured himself very badly. He was uh, he was unconscious for a long time before he was rescued, and that that interfered with his cognitive ability in his last couple of years. But um, he still, you know, had a joint authored paper at that time, and his book was released around that time. Um, one thing that I, I found out from his daughter uh, was a fact that was a factor in his later years. So you see a sharp break between Hoyle in up to in the 1970s and then Hoyle in the 1970s and later. Because even in the 1960s, Hoyle was willing to admit that uh, the Big Bang could be right. I mean, he sort of briefly was pro-Big Bang, you know, well, we have no other explanation for the helium abundance. You know, we need something to explain where all the helium comes from. So maybe the Big Bang, and he said maybe Little Bangs. Uh, but the problem was in the early 1970s, the institute that he founded in Cambridge was closed. It was converted into something else. And he was very upset about it. And he left Cambridge early uh, before he was uh, eligible to retire and went off to a mountaintop in a very remote part of England, the Lake District of England. Now, his daughter said that at that point, he had a lot of connections in the United States. He had connections at Caltech. He had connections at Rice University. So he could have gone easily gone to Caltech or to Rice University. And then, of course, at uh, San Diego, there was Burb- the Burbages. He could have gone to probably gone to San Diego. So he would have been very much more productive and much more integrated into the mainstream astrophysics community if he had moved to the United States. But his wife, Barbara, put her foot down and wanted to stay in England. Hmm. And he loved nature. He loved the wilderness. He would have loved and did love the times he spent in Southern California. That would have been great. Or he, he could have, you know, spent time other places in the United States. Uh, like Gamow, he loved frontier areas. He loved wild areas, but he wasn't allowed because of his, his wife's preferences mm-hmm. to to resettle. So they went to Lake District, and there, really, almost no one could visit them. They could visit maybe in the summer, come all the way up there, visit for a couple of days, but there wasn't this regular commerce. And uh, some of us remember the days before email and the internet, uh, you would have to go to a university library to look for paper journals. And then you would have to mail your articles to people. So if you were in a remote area where there wasn't access to a university library, you would have to rely on your own journal subscriptions, which took weeks to get to you. So you, you, would, you would not be able to keep up with everything. And that's the problem. Hoyle couldn't keep up with the astrophysics community. So he started just going with his gut feelings. And he was writing a lot of books and started to think about, you know, odd ideas like the idea of germs from space, the idea that a fossil in a London Natural History Museum was faked, was forged, which he had no real, no real evidence for. But he began to be grouped in with create creationists, which was supremely ironic because he was not religious at all and didn't really believe in the beginning of the universe. But creationists started to love him because he was questioning 
Darwin's idea of evolution on Earth and looking to, to space. So some creationists were like, you see, this top scientist is saying Darwin is wrong. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then there was uh, plenty of scientists who would be happy to throw him under the bus, and including put him in, in league with, uh, with creation, young earth creationists. I, I will say that I did recently provide a blurb for a book by Stephen C. Meyer, who is a Cambridge uh, PhD in philosophy of science. And he wrote a book called Return of the God Hypothesis, in which he asserts that, you know, Hoyle kind of came to, and he's a, um, I would say he's an intelligent design advocate, uh, and not a young earth creationist by any means. But, uh, but nevertheless, uh, he claimed that Hoyle, in large part due to not the archaeopteryx that you mentioned and not the germs from space, but really the fine tuning, the Hoyle miracle, the um, beryllium resonance, that that was kind of indicative to him that the universe was t- tuned. Uh, and the quote is something like by a designer. Did you come across any of that kind of in your scholarship along the way, Paul? One has to be careful, and I'm always careful when researching what people say in their later years compared to what they say in their earlier years. And uh, a lot of physicists, including people like Heisenberg, Einstein, and so forth, in their later years, they become more philosophical. And they say, oh, well, philosophy drove me to these conclusions. And I think Hoyle came up with the uh, resonance idea, the beryllium resonance idea for carbon-12. And it was a hunch. And uh, there, there isn't anything written by him at that time which makes use of the anthropic principle. But then in the 1980s, the anthropic principle became extremely popular. There were books out on the anthropic principle, and a lot of people started making anthropic arguments. And just for viewers out there who don't know what the anthropic principle is, the idea that the conditions in the universe were fine-tuned in such a way that we are here, that intelligent, conscious life is here. And if they were slightly different, then you wouldn't have conscious entities. And that's when Hoyle said, okay, well, if it weren't for this carbon, beryllium carbon resonance, uh, then carbon wouldn't be created. There wouldn't be any life in the universe and we wouldn't be here to talk about it. So he made that argument more later in life. And he said that, wow, I was the first one, he said, to use anthropic reasoning. And maybe we don't know what went on inside his head. So maybe that was in some primitive form going on inside his head when he came up with that idea. But it's not shown, especially in his writings from that period. It's shown mm-hmm. more in his writings afterward mm-hmm. um, when, he talked, when he looked back with hindsight on his earlier work. And throughout the book, there are these, you know, brokers, these middlemen, uh, these kind of uh, supporting characters, some of whom go on to greater fame, renown, accolades than even Gamov or Hoyle. And we can debate that. Uh, one of whom is Willie Fowler. And of course, the other one is uh, is Martin Ryle. And, uh, you know, these these two gentlemen went on to win Nobel Prizes and get great renown. And in some cases, you know, uh, superseded what Hoyle did, at least in attention. But I would say in terms of their, you know, kind of contributions to our understanding of the universe, to popularization of the universe um, uh, as we know it, uh, they really don't compare to either Gamow or or to uh, Sir Fred Hoyle. And, you know, what's curious to me is... Um, 
again, the, when we paint this picture of Hoyle, it's like, oh, you know, he was just this kind of doddering guy, too in love with his idea of the steady state, and et cetera. And even after it was uh, known to be wrong, he kind of maintained it and and added epicycles. And I've said some things like that in my past too. So I'm not saying I'm holier than thou or sanctimonious in any way, but um, but in reality, there really was no other way to think about things. I think, you know, there is this notion, and you talk about McKellar and discovering this um, the state of cyanogen that seemed to indicate that space was, you know, three Kelvin. And of course, Gamow's team, it was, in my research, it was like every other year, the temperature of the CMB would fluctuate, both because the age was uncertain by factors of two and more, but also because of, you know, some of the the input parameters in their model were getting refined as nuclear processes became better understood. Nevertheless, the temperatures varied from 5 Kelvin to 50 Kelvin. Uh, and famously, of course, Dickey had some measurement where he claimed that he had made it decades before Penzias and Wilson. But uh, I mean, yeah, to, to make of their, their predicament, I think we have to be more charitable, right? I mean, things were very uncertain, unclear. It wasn't an era of precision cosmology when one could say, these two values differ by five sigma, and we know each, you know, one to the, you know, sub percent level. So, um, should we be more kind of, uh, you know, gracious in our condemnation of people like Hoyle? And it's only in hindsight that we knew the oh, the temperature was three Kelvin, right? Yeah, that's that's true. We always look at uh, science stories in in a simple way. We say, well, this is how it resolved, and this person was right, and this person was wrong, but. It was was certainly unclear in in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, especially before um, Penzias and Wilson discovery, uh, which which side would win. And uh, the New York Times, as I showed in my book, uh, sometimes would proclaim that some measurement uh, proved that the Big Bang was wrong, uh, because uh, when experiments were being done at the Kellogg Lab. Uh, Caltech showing that uh, Hoyle and uh, the Burbage's and Fowler's model of stellar nucleosynthesis was correct. Um, a New York Times article said, well, that means the Big Bang is wrong. Of course, both could be correct, which is what turned out to be. The Big Bang produces the helium, stellar nucleosynthesis produces everything else. But the simplistic article said, well, Big Bang's a failure. So people were betting on the two and it was unclear, uh, really, until the mid-60s. And then afterward, the Big Bang still had problems. And, and even today, we're, we're still trying to resolve things. Uh, people like to think of a concordance model, but there's certain parameters we're still trying to pin down. So the story really, really never ends. Yeah, that's one of the delightful you know, aspects of science. I always say, you know, science is an infinite game. Uh, that you can never win science uh, like you can win a chess game, but it is composed of a lot of finite games, you know, getting a PhD, getting a faculty position, getting a Nobel Prize. And one of those finite games, or two of those finite games, uh, at least two of them, you know, Hoyle legitimately lost out on, and Gamov and even Alpher until the, you know, day he died, basically. I mean, the year after he died, the Nobel Prize was awarded to a past guest on the show, John Mather, and hopefully future guest George Smoot, uh, he could have, you know, certainly been been awarded. But but talk about Ryle and Fowler because, you know, I I point out no one's ever turned down a Nobel Prize in physics, uh, but there have been a lot that turned down Nobel Peace Prizes, literature prizes, other prizes. Um, so how come these two uh, these two men, Fowler 
and Ryle, um, you know, would you speculate? Of course, they're not around to defend themselves. But um, what, what do you make of their kind of willingness to, you know, claim credit for stuff that other people did or not share the credit? Let me just say it like that. Let me say share the credit with what other people did. And, and, Ga- and Gamov's case is even kind of extends to the second generation because um, his student, Vera Rubin, uh, uh, she worked with him. I don't know if she was uh, actually a student, but they worked together. And of course, she was overlooked uh, for her own Nobel Prize. So talk yeah. about this n- notion of, of, of how uh, these otherwise great scientists who collaborated, benefited from collaboration with Gamov and Hoyle, how they were kind of all too happy to, to, to not maybe, you know, kind of share some of the credit that they did receive, unfortunately, with Fowler and, and with Gamow. Well, with, the, with Hoyle and Gamow, sorry. Well, in the case of Fowler, that was kind of a strange situation because Hoyle was the one who came up with the original idea of stellar nucleosynthesis, and that was manifest in a 1946 paper. And Hoyle shared the idea with Fowler, and then they recruited the Burbages and formed a team of four, a quartet. And as you, uh, you know, nicely point out in your book, um, losing the Nobel Prize, uh, it's it's sad that the Nobel Prize in in physics in science can never be shared by more than three people, and can't be awarded posthumously. And and uh, as all these things you pointed out, in terms of of that, because uh, uh, the for, the quartet should have been awarded the Nobel Prize for stellar nucleosynthesis, not Fowler. So um, there's speculation, and, and this is unconfirmed, but there's speculation that Hans Bethe was on the committee, on the selection committee, and um, or, or maybe was the nominator, I should say, for that prize, and mistakenly thought that Fowler was the head of the team, since he knew, he knew of Fowler's work uh, more. But there's a lot of speculation about that Nobel Prize, why Hoyle wasn't awarded it. And uh, part of it may have been his advocacy for Jocelyn Bell Burnell when uh, Ryle split the prize with Hewitt and uh, for discovery of pulsars pulsars, and uh, Jocelyn Bell Burnell was excluded, which is, which is very sad um, because she was the one who first spotted evidence for pulsars as a graduate student. Well, I have a consolation prize for her, Paul. She's going to be on the Into the Impossible podcast on December 10th of this year, which is obviously, everybody knows, is Alfred Nobel's death date and the day they give out Nobel Prizes. So stay tuned for that. That'll be a great consolation for brilliant, her. Brilliant. I will look forward to that. I saw a wonderful program she did recently on astronomy poetry, and it, that was really fun. Wow. Uh, but she she's amazing and, and really very animated. So I'll look forward to that. But, um, but Hoyle made the mistake of not just complaining about the Nobel Committee in that case, but also he complained uh, about her being left out of, of the of the work of, of which which wasn't true. She she was listed, she was listed on all the papers, and uh, you know she she was recognized by the team. It just, she just wasn't recognized by the Nobel Committee. But anyway, and then the other reason I speculate that Hoyle didn't wasn't sharing the Nobel Prize was because of all of his fringe beliefs. And uh, some some of Hoyle's uh, collaborators said, well, maybe um, he uh, he was uh, uh, excluded because they didn't want to award somebody who's talking about, you know, life coming from space and all the, these things. 
So there's a, it's a complicated situation, um, but certainly Alpha should have won the Nobel Prize. And uh, I was thinking at the time I was researching the book, I was interv- I interviewed Jim Peebles, and I was thinking, oh, he should have really won the Nobel Prize. And remarkably, a few weeks after I interviewed him, he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, <laughs> that was amazing. That was incredible because. Um, I did research from the Dickey archives and realized that Peebles was the one, the main person calculating the CMB temperature and saying, uh, identifying it with the Big Bang, identifying with a hot fireball, I was, as was said at the time. And Dickey kept saying, no, it's, it's thermalized energy from a previous incarnation of the universe. Dickey would not let go of the oscillatory universe model. He was yeah. a strong advocate of the idea that there was no singularity, that the Big Bang uh, was just really something that was a cycle, and that this CMB was evidence of a previous cycle. And when people asked him to give talks about the CMB, Dickey always said, go to Peebles. Yeah. Peebles is better for that. And Dickey preferred to talk about his... Um, his ideas about gravity, his idea that of changeable, uh, of the changeable cause, uh, no changeable gravitational constant. Yeah. He, he was an advocate of what became known as bronze Dickey or Jordan bronze Dickey model of the universe. He, he preferred t- to look at alternative models of uh, relativity rather than CMB. So it was really people's advocacy that push for that. So mm-hmm. I was yeah. delighted. I was delighted when he won the Nobel Prize. And if I remember correctly, you pl- you played some role in in uh, getting Dickey's uh, you know the gr- famous gravity groups location, a uh, historic landmark in physics. Is that right, Paul? Yes, we. Uh, that's I got to know Peebles because we uh, my group, uh, which was the APS Historic Site Committee, put a plaque in the building where um, where they worked which used to be called Palmer Lab and now is is the uh, student center at Princeton. Yeah. And we had a plaque ceremony there. And Peebles had very specific ideas for where the plaque should be and uh, what it should read and so forth, which was really cool yeah. working with him on that. He's the most avuncular uh, person that I know in this in this wonderful field that I'm privileged to work in. Uh, before we wrap up, I do want to talk about kind of modern incarnations. As you know, Mark Twain said, "History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes." And speaking on the topic of Nobel Prize winners this time, we'll talk about uh, Sir Roger Penrose. And Sir Roger's uh, 90th birthday was just last week, and we had a uh, fest shift, as they used to call them, for him remotely. Uh, sponsored by Stuart Hammeroff, upcoming guest on the podcast. And uh, this was a wonderful celebration, but I was uh, asked to speak about Sir Roger's uh, conformal cyclic cosmology. And of course, Roger and Stephen uh, Hawking um, made these great contributions to our understanding of at least classical general relativity in the context of singularities. And, uh, and nowadays, uh, I, well, I shouldn't say nowadays for Stephen Hawking, unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but certainly Sir Roger has abandoned this notion of a singularity. Um, my friend and uh, another fellow Paul, uh, Paul Steinhardt at Princeton University, Einstein Professor of Science at, at Princeton, has, uh, along with his colleague Anna Aegis, who's an upcoming guest on the podcast, have a cyclic model. Neil Turok had participated on. You, you spoke a little bit about them. 
But uh, what would what do you think that Hoyle and and even Gamov would make of uh, uh, of these new reincarnations? You know, everything cyclic is is new again. <laughs> I have a, a woodcut that I showed from uh, in my talk to Sir Roger's birthday gathering of this Egyptian cosmogony which really is a cyclic cosmology of the universe. Is re, you know, it's 3,000 years old. It's older than the uh, account of Genesis in some way. So anyway, what do you think that – where would this take Hoyle and, 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 and Gamov? How would they react, uh, do you think? I mean, this is – we can't – you know, this is kind of like a, a fan fiction, right? But, uh, yeah. but we're such big fans of both of them, thanks in large part to your work. What do you think they'd react to these new models of cycles and, and um, collapsing universes and so forth? I think Gamov uh, would have been open to the idea of previous incarnations of the universe. He some occasionally talked about a kind of big squeeze, sort of squeezing matter from some previous era. He did, didn't go into specifics into what he called the lem or the um, the matter that made up the the Big Bang. So um, he would have been open to that. And interestingly enough, um, the preprint of the original Steinhardt paper on cyclic cosmology appeared before Hoyle died. So mm. I, I always wonder if Hoyle read it. Um, I have no evidence that he read it. So he, he wouldn't, he didn't, wasn't alive when the actual paper was published, but um, it was called the Ekpriorotic Universe. And uh, I, 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 I always wonder what Hoyle would have thought of that, but I think he would have tried to mold it into some form of the quasi steady state universe because he was very very stubborn about holding <laughs> on to that in his later years. Um, but um, I, I, I found the work, the early work of Penrose and Hawking, was instrumental in convincing uh, Dickey's group, Dickey to some extent, but his group that there what must have been a singularity in the universe because um, Penrose, of course, showed that black holes must uh, collapse into a singularity. And then Hawking time reversed that to show that the Big Bang must begin in a singularity. And I show in my book that Dickey kept writing to uh, Hawking's advisor, Dennis Siyama, um, well, um, you know, is there a way out of this? Are you sure you tested every possible uh, <laughs> cosmology, open cosmology, closed cosmology? Because... Uh, Dickey really wanted to believe that there was a previous incarnation of the universe. That was a, there was a way out of the singularity. And Shyama just kept saying, uh, oh no, uh, you know, Hawking keeps trying all these models and it's always, it always starts in a singularity. And that was uh, sort of a milestone, a theoretical milestone in understanding the Big Bang, just like the CMB was a, an experimental milestone, the discovery of the CMB. And those both happened in the mid '60s and greatly revolutionized cosmology. I think uh, it was Steven Weinberg uh, recently departed, sadly, who said that uh, physics thrives on crises. And uh, at the time, I think he said an addendum. You know, luckily there are no crises going on right now, <laughs> or that's why you know physics is stagnating or something. Do you see the current epoch, Paul, as a as a time of crisis? 
as a time of opportunity, as the Chinese allegedly, according to uh, John F. Kennedy, at least uh, his purported claim that the symbol is the same or comprised of two characters mean crisis and opportunity. Do you think that uh, you know we're kind of in a in a state where we've become a precision science? We know things to the to the fourth decimal place in some cases. We can have uh, tension at the five sigma level. These are things that are unimaginable, even when I was a graduate student in the 90s, let alone you know uh, when Hoyle and Gamow were operating. Uh, what do you think they would make of it? Would they say this is a time for opportunity or is it a time for crisis and stagnation maybe? Well, it depends. If, if you like general relativity the way it stands, if you like the standard model of particle physics the way it stands, and you don't mind the fact that they're completely different, then there's no crisis. But if you are really upset by the fact that those are completely different theories describing, in one case, three of the known forces, and in the other case, one of the known forces, gravity, um, then it's a supreme crisis because the two of them can't be reconciled. So it depends on whether or not you're philosophically okay with saying we have some forces which operate using a field theory and, and another force uh, well, uh, a quantum field theory, I should say, and another force that operates using a classical field theory based on space-time as as the field. Uh, then, then if you if you're happy with the separate theories, then there's no crisis. So, I'd like to see a, a greater unity, but it might turn out that we have to be satisfied with what we have. And the last thing I guess I would want to speculate on uh, or have your speculation on Gamov and, and Hoyle, you, you bring to the forefront the, uh, the kind of inception or the nascent beginning of com- computers in the early uh, 60s and, and late 50s, et cetera, uh, that were made use of by these physicists. And part of the reason you attribute to Hoyle's decline in productivity was you know, being on the top of some mountain in the Lake District, they probably didn't have, you know, T1 internet, Ethernet or, you know, T10 or whatever, gigabit uh, quality service, I, I should say. So um, this, the rise of, of AI, of machine learning, what, what do you think that that impact, you know, would have been? I mean, imagine a counterfactual history where, you know, Gamov has a quantum computer and, and Hoyle, you know, would it have made a difference or were these, you know, old fashioned you know, pencil and paper theorist, and and the computer was mainly to check for people like Wagoner that you mentioned, who's a wonderful person I got the pleasure to know when I was at Stanford. Um, You talk about the impact of computers and and so forth. Um, Do you think they would have made use of these, this technology, AI, physicists, et cetera, machine learning? Or, you know, would they have been just the same kind of just old-fashioned calculators that they were on pen and paper? Well, Hoyle got more adept with computers in his later years and was actually happy in his final years at Cambridge, because they had computers at his Institute for Theoretical Astronomy. That was one thing he was very happy about. Um, But he didn't have computers in the Lake District, um, which was a big problem. Uh, Gamov was sort of in the early computer age where um, computers weren't used for cosmological calculations so much. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, maybe... uh, you know, calculating things like that, military detonations and things like that. Um, so uh, he certainly was familiar with computers, but he did he, he did things more as quick calculations. I think if he had access to quantum computers, he would have told uh, Alpha and Herman to learn how to use them and to do the calculations and to report back to him. 
Yes, and they would have been the richer for it, no doubt. Uh, Paul, I can't resist. If you'll indulge me, uh, what are you working on next? I'm just so curious. Well, I'm working on a bunch of articles. I have an article uh, that I'm working on about uh, history of Marx principle and a contribution to a volume on on a history of experimental testing of general relativity in oh, the wow. 1950s and 1960s. So I'm, 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 I was asked to contribute a, a chapter about John Wheeler's contributions to that. So I go from books to short articles, and uh, I've been uh, fortunate in later years, I get a, a lot of invitations to write things. So yeah. I'm happy to work to work on those things. And also sometimes contribute pieces to my own blog on Medium, which is accessible through my Twitter page. And I spent a lot of time on Twitter, which is either incredibly beneficial or uh, otherwise, I I haven't decided, but it's it's been a lot of fun getting to know people on Twitter and uh, coming up with new things about Einstein and other people uh, that uh, sometimes surprises people. Yes, I love uh, your Twitter feed. And lately, I've been asking people, you know, what uh, another counterfactual, my favorite lately is, you know, if Twitter existed in 1864, when a young Scotsman, James Clerk Maxwell was coming up with four eponymous equations that would later bear his name, uh, that were ultimately the first, you know, kind of quantitative unification of forces, fields, uh, and so forth in physics, mathematically speaking, set the pathway for the Yang-Mills field theory equation. Uh, but imagine he tweets out, you know, I've discovered these equations and well, how does it work? Well, there are these gears, you see, there are these gears and whirlpools and, and vortices in space and the ether and people would have just mocked them. It would have been ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's kind of maybe one of the downsides of, of, of our modern communications age and why people like Steinhardt has told me he's never going to use Twitter, you know, because he has so many ideas and, and sometimes you don't want to kill them too young, right? Because they may bear fruit. And it's kind of maybe funny to think about what Gamov would do uh, with a Twitter account. But but for now, I want to thank you, Paul, so much as usual, not only for spending your valuable time with me, but also for sharing your gifts of writing. I always write an encomium, you know, uh, hoping that somebody will read it. But I, I, since no one's going to read it, I'll just say this is what I'll put on my uh, Amazon review when it comes out. I'll say, I learned so much from this topic that I already knew that this is the surest sign of an expert scholar's touch. Uh, so, Paul, I want to thank you for teaching me. You are a teacher of mine, and I appreciate you so much. Can't wait for your next work. I can't wait for your next appearance. And what I'd really love is to replicate the drive of Gamov and Hoyle with you. We'll rent a Cadillac sometime when you're in La Jolla and we'll <laughs> down the seaside coast to a cave and, and just hang out. That would be fantastic. Sound? Uh, you can start your own show, uh, you know, physicists in cars or something like that. <laughs> 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 be Thank you, Paul. <laughs> this has been a delight. Thank you so much, as always. Oh, Good luck with the book. Great talking to you, Brian. Thank you so much. Thanks. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. 
We appreciate hearing from you and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.